0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Forum Chatter uh, podcast slash live show. Um, This episode, I'm going to be joined by Magda Tetter, who is the Schwidler Chair in Judaic Studies and the Professor of History at Fordham University. We're going to be discussing her new book called Blood Libel on the Trail of an Anti-Semitic Myth by Harvard University Press. Uh, It came out a number of months ago. I don't remember exactly uh, which month. So we'll be discussing the book as well as... In general the, the topic of blood libel, um, which is something I guess that everybody knows kind of probably just as a basic. Not like in depth. Okay, you're on. Can you hear me?
1: I can. Yes.
0: Okay. So thank you very much for joining me tonight. Um, I guess why don't we start off with the, tell the audience a little bit of a uh, background about yourself.
1: So, uh, well, I am a, I'm a professor of Jewish history at Fordham University right now, where I direct the Center for Jewish Studies and uh, and the Jewish Studies program. Um, so check us out; we have uh, fantastic events now all virtual. Um, I uh, I grew up in Poland in communist Poland, and then uh, when the wall fell, I uh, was able and and the relations with Israel were reestablished. I was able to study Hebrew in Israel, and then I uh, came to the United States to get my PhD at Columbia in Jewish history, and that's ancient history by now.
0: <laughs> I gotcha. So th- this book we're, we're going to be discussing here is your new book, uh, like I mentioned in the open, Blood Libel on the Trail of an Anti-Semitic Myth. This is your third book. Um, how, did, how does this pertain to your earlier, earlier works?
1: So uh, this is actually a book I did not want to write, and uh, it's, I have proof of that because when I was working on my second book, uh, on my last book, previous book, I should say, I uh, was in the Vatican archives and I pulled the Trent trial, which is the trial of Jews in 1475 in the town of Trent, Uh, from the archives and I looked at it and I just said um, and my notes say nothing here for me but it was neat to see that's all I have in my notes Uh, so this uh, this book actually was as I said not intended to be written but it ended up being written Uh, but uh, it's part of the trajectory I i when I was a graduate student at Columbia, um, both Professor Yerushalmi and Michael Stanislavski encouraged me to explore the question of Jews in the Catholic Church, which was one of those uh, topics that uh, was, uh, people had very strong opinions about, but was really understudied. Um, and so my dissertation was on the Jews and the Catholic Church in Poland, where I grew up. And my first book was on Jews and heretics in Catholic Poland, exploring the pre-modern Jewish-Christian relations. Um, the, and I was, thought I was done with the topic. I thought I was going to do something else, more social history. Uh, and then I was, um, I was working on my second book, which I thought was going to be more of a social history of Jewish history, social history on uh, crime and the sort of underworld of uh, of, of Jews in, in, in Eastern Europe, in Poland. Uh, but sources were very scarce. As you know, rabbinic sources are very specific. And so when you go to the archives, you have mostly Polish criminal records. And uh, I wasn't getting any... Any kind of uh, feel of what I should, what I should write about. It just there was a lot of interesting stories, uh, but then one thing struck me um, that there was a pattern in accusations and in the what was considered crime of sacrilege, which was uh, really about robbing churches. But it was also a crime that was uh, that was uh, given, or the Jews were classified as committing. Uh, for host desecration so my second book ended up being again unwittingly and not by design on another pre-modern medieval pre-modern accusation of jews stealing the consecrated host and uh, and being accused of desecrating it and again i thought i was done with it i did not want to write anything more about anti-jewish accusations uh, but my book um didn't uh, i discovered that there was a disconnection between the uh, the blood libel accusations and the uh, host desecration accusation and my editor encouraged me to pursue the question and you know when you finish a book I said okay i said i'll spend a summer reading a little bit i noticed a pattern that in eastern territories what is now ukraine there were accusations of um of blood libel, but in the territories of Poland, there were more uh, host desecration accusations. So I thought, oh, that was interesting. Well, maybe I'll go to Ukraine and dig a little bit around. But then the sources, as I was reading over the summer um, between my books, they were pulling me back west. They were actually not pulling me east. They're pulling me back west. They're pulling me to Italy and back to the topic of the church and Jews. And I thought, okay, well, I guess I need to begin to explore it. Um, so I began to explore it. And, and the book initially was um, designed as a comparison between Poland and Italy, between two Catholic pre-modern states uh, or, or, or countries uh, or geographic regions, I should say more accurately. Uh, and uh, And I... And I thought that what was going to be was a nicely designed six chapters, quick, quick write, uh, and then I started digging into sources. So this book that uh, we're discussing today is based on sources in 10 languages in archives uh, uh, from eight countries, including the Vatican City. So... Uh, it really it really pulled me in in surprising directions. Uh, my problem with that was that I actually could read the ten languages and uh, and couldn't sort of make an excuse, oh well, I'll just focus on what I wanted originally to. so that's why this book grew to this massive volume that really spans from the medieval period until. I arguably until twenty nineteen because I start with an incident, uh the Poway synagogue shooting near San Diego, where the shooter actually uh used one of the characters in my book, uh Simon of Trent from 1475, as as motivation uh for the shooting. So um so the book is really uh from the ele- from the twelfth to uh, the 18th century, but has overtures to the 19th and 21st century as well.
0: Well, sorry, for, for, for not really wanting to, to, to write something, you ended up, I'll show it for people watching on camera. It's a pretty thick book, like 500 some pages, so it's a, it's a really uh, large book. Before we jump into the book, I want to just go back to something you mentioned before. You were mentioning a bunch of times post-desecration. I think, just explain to the audience what that is, because people know a blood libel, and we'll get into that, but they may not be familiar what even, what is even host designation.
1: So in the medieval period, in the thirteenth century, another one of those libels uh, uh, it, it was um, uh actually in in Hebrew sources. So it was a, a an accusation that Jews stole from the Catholic churches the. The, a wafer that priests use during the mass when they say the words for, uh, this is my body this is my blood and consecrated this piece of wafer um, and according to the 13th century dogma of the Catholic Church this wafer when the priest pronounced those words turned into the actual body and blood of Christ. And, of course, people who were consuming it during the communion were like, this is, this is a wafer. What, what do you mean? It? So there was a lot of doubt about it. So all kinds of stories of miracles emerged in the 13th century trying to affirm this new dogma. There were, uh, you know, stories about priests doubting what they were doing and, you know, the wafer turning into little baby Jesus and things like that. But one of the stories that emerged at the time was that Jews affirmed the verity of that transformation or the, the technical term is transubstantiation of that wafer, which was made of flour and water only. Of that wafer into the body and blood of Jesus, of what or Christ, as as Jesus is called in Christianity. Uh, so Jews were said to be stealing it and then believing that it's actually Jesus, were desecrating it. So they served as the sort of tool of affirmation of that new dogma to fight this doubt that was that was spread within Christianity.
0: Interesting. Okay. So that's another, That's my second another.
1: book. That's my
0: right. second okay. book. Okay. So similar, definitely similar to this. So let's start. This book is about the blood libel. So let's start in the beginning. I and mean, I think people know basically what the blood libel is. If you want to, you know, just give a background of what what it is and what exactly they were accused of. And also, when was quote unquote the first blood libel?
1: So uh, blood libel technically is an accusation that the Jews c- kill Christians, initially Christian children to obtain their blood. That accusation emerged in the 13th century, uh, but that is already after certain other rumors and stories uh, had been in existence. And those earlier stories, which emerged in the mid-12th century, uh, were that Jews were uh, killing Christian children as a reenactment of the passion of Christ. In other words, that Jews hated Jesus so much and they wanted every year on Passover, re-crucify Jesus. But because Jesus is not around, they would steal Christian children to do that. And that first story, that kind of narrative, which has nothing to do with the blood aspect of it, emerged in 12th century, mid-12th century England. Uh, In um, in the second really uh, half of the century uh, in Norwich. So in 1144, there was a boy named William. He was 12 years old. And he died in the forest, and his body was found in the forest near Norwich, and and nothing really happened after his body was found. He he was eventually buried, and and end of story. It was over the Easter time, uh, but years later, a monk came to Norwich, and he heard about this boy, and he began to um, wanted to promote. The idea that uh, that uh, William was a martyr—that was William was killed by Jews—and Jews were very new in town at the time. They were they were seen as sort of uh, colonial immigrants because they came with with uh, not that long ago with the normal Norman invasion. So they were francophone. They were fairly. Uh, allied with those in power they were you know economically prominent that's why they they came they were not poor immigrants so there was this tension and they were seen in that way so he began to uh, to to concoct that story and it at the very same time as he's doing it uh, Christianity comes through a major cultural transformation that focuses, in liturgy on the suffering of Jesus. So before that, you would have this sort of idea of Jesus in glory, that he is God, right? At whom you pray. But at that, around that time, Christians began to think about Jesus as a man and Jesus as a suffering man. So when you start thinking about Jesus as suffering man during crucifixion over Passover or Easter, what comes to mind is obviously the the torture and the killing of Jesus, and then the the Jews are immediately part of the story as as they are told through the gospels. So so that story of of, ne- of William of Norwich that um, Thomas of Monmouth the, the the monk writes and begins to promote reads very much like a a story of fitting the death of that that twelve year old boy. Um, to that newly emerging narrative that becomes very popular in Christianity. So as you could probably see that many of the persecutions of Jews and these libels, whether it's that host desecration libel, or whether it's the the, uh, first the ritual, uh, accusation of the ritual killing in reenactment of the Passion, uh, is tied to Christian theological development.
0: Right. So is, is this Thomas of Mammoth, is he considered like the quote-unquote creator of the blood libel? Who, who, who really created it, so to speak?
1: So so it, it, Thomas is an interesting character because actually his story was written, he wrote it, and it's a very compelling narrative and it's actually translated into English. So if you want to uh, when I read it by, uh, transitions by Miri Rubin, who is a medievalist, uh, uh, she's actually, she grew up in Israel and she's a scholar of, of medieval history in, uh, in England right now, um, in London, but uh, it's a very sort of elaborate narrative, but that was actually hidden, it disappeared. It was only found in the 19th century. So that story has actually more meaning for us modern scholars who are trying to create that line of, of history and oh, this started then, and then there is a direct line uh, leading to, to the subsequent accusations. But in, in fact, it was kind of lost. I call it in the book, the broken memory trail that he sort of started and then it disappears. And it probably disappears because Jews are eventually expelled from England in 1290. So that sort of memory trail is broken there. Far more important is the continent, the European continent. And the blood libel, that is technically the accusations that Jews uh, kill Christians to obtain their blood, emerges in on the continent. First is expressed, as, we, as far as we know, in 1235 in Fulda, in the German territories. And then it comes back uh, in 1247 in Provence, in Valrea, and rea And uh, in both cases, when that blood motif is added, there is a very strong reaction from Christian authorities. So the emperor immediately summons uh, a committee, a commission to, that investigates that. It includes some converted Jews who say, Jews don't do that stuff. Jews can't consume any blood. Like, what are you talking about, right? That, that's, and it's unequivocally sort of condemned as an accusation and he says, do not do that. My subjects. please do not do that. Then in 1247, that is very close to the papal uh, territories uh, in Avignon in southern France, Jews reach to the Pope and the Pope issues uh, what is one of the most explicit condemnations of such accusations ever issued by the the Catholic Church. And he specifically says that this is concocted by by Christians out of greed and out of desire to to, uh, to steal Jewish property and uh, and harm them for political reasons and, and condemns Christians for doing it. Uh, but again, it's because there is the assumption or, or in the accusation that Jews do it because their religion requires blood and both the uh, imperial authorities and the church authorities and Jews, I think, See it as a really dangerous development. Succeed to convey to these authorities that we don't do this. Our law prohibits us from any consumption of any blood.
0: Right. To be clear, the accusation always was that the blood was going to get. it took the blood to bake it into the matzah. Right. That was always what it was.
1: Yeah, that sort of comes in a little later. But yes, it's related to that earlier story that I mentioned of the uh, house secretion, right, because in the idea, the Catholic idea that that wafer made of just water and, and flour, exactly like matzah, just water and flour is then miraculously by that pronouncement by the priest turned into the body and blood of Christ. And because Jews are disbelievers, they want to add that blood into the matzah because they can't, they can't do it, right? So it's connected uh, theologically to that other story.
0: Right. Um. Uh, so we'll get back to you. Mentioned the the the, the Pope. So we'll get back on and get back to that in a in a bit later. But so who who would be? You, you said Thomas's uh, chronicle, so to speak, was like kind of lost, hidden. So who was really the first one to mention it? Where do we really see it being written down and and, and spread? Or you know, <laughs> right,
1: right. So so the 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 narrative uh, because uh, Thomas's narrative is lost, we can't really take it as as this uh, conveying this story. The first, there are these different examples after, and different stories that emerge here and there, but they don't develop into a coherent narrative. The first time when we know when that narrative emerges and it's fully developed and it's popularized is precisely in Trento, in Trent, right, with the the story of Simon of Trent, uh, who's who is a toddler. Uh, just over two years old, uh, who during the uh, Christian Holy Week and 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 Jewish Passover they overlapped at the time in March 1475, disappeared, and then was found dead uh, in the, under the house of Jews. There were there are a lot of canals in Trento, and uh, the body washed up under uh, the house of a Jewish family, and immediately a narrative story was written by this local writer, Matthias Tiberino, who uh, who sort of c- compiled all the diverse elements that we see only in glimpses in the medieval tales. So really 1475, we have a full-fledged account of that. And it's an important moment because unlike the medieval stories that kind of stayed locally, in Bachrach, in you know Fulda, in um, other places, here for the first time, it occurs when soon after the first mass production of uh, of media is is produced, this, the printing press is developed, and the accusers, the bishop of Trent, know how to use the media it's the it's it's not the first time that we have the sort of spreading through new media technology uh fake news so to speak it's it right away they really take that story and they run with it they print out the pamphlets they print out for the first time images how they imagine the story the bishop sends letters to artists say please you know, uh, create images of Jews killing Simon, of, you know, Simon and glory, of Simon's body, lifeless body. And he, and he then spreads it and sells it and tries to attract print, uh, pilgrims to the town. So we, it's the first time of use of, of the mass media, so to speak, and media technology to disseminate that hateful tale. Uh, and and that is the moment that is really, I believe, a pivotal moment. So until so between even, let's say, between the death of, of William of Norwich in 1144 and the death of the boy Simon in 1475, we have about 23 accounts of these accusations, these sort of different stories, and only eight of them were we know that there were some legal proceedings, something, it's not just, oh, some chronicler says that, which is not verifiable, or some poem says something. After, if we take the 300 years and we take the 300 years after the the Simon of Trent story, we have over 80 such accusations. And over 60 of them end up in trials of Jews in actually court proceedings. So and you can see it uh, on the website that the book comes with the the, the bloodlibeltrail.org, tra- the, the blood you can play with the maps there because you can sort of move the, the, the dates and see how they, how they change. So that trial and that ma- use of mass media really disseminated the story. Uh, and it became, you know, popularly known across Europe because it entered not just anti-Jewish pamphlets, but it entered general histories of the world. So you, you wanted to learn something about this king, that king. You were sort of flipping through chronicles and ooh, you come across that story and some of the other stories. Yeah.
0: So is it fair to say that Simon of Trent is the most famous blood libel case?
1: uh yes it is the most famous because it was the most widely disseminated in the pre-modern period and it then in the modern period, period uh got the sort of new life um uh, lease of on of life by the nazis so the nazis then discovered this image of Simon of Trent. If you, tr- you Google Simon of Trent, um, the image that will come up will come from the 1493 Chronicle by Hartmann Schädel in German Weltkronik or in, uh, in Latin Liber Chronicarum, And it became the sort of most iconic image of, of the story. And it wasn't, again, like, like the William of Norwich story, this image actually was not known, but the Nazis found it very compelling and they published it in the, their Der which was the, the most anti-Semitic and the most kind of disgusting rag, anti-Semitic rag that they published. And they published it in 1934 and then it, it became used all over the Nazi propaganda, books about Jews and all kinds of things. And that entered this sort of, ep- if we can call it, epistemic community of neo-Nazis today who are reading these things. And that's why we have this shooter in Poway in, near San Diego referring to Simon as one of the reasons why he is going on a shooting rampage of, of Jews.
0: Right. I believe in the book you dedicate at least one whole chapter to Simon of Trent. So you want to maybe explain a little bit more, give you a little bit more background to everybody about the, the case in Trent. There actually was a trial. What, 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 how did it play out for the end of the Jews of Trent?
1: So Trent, which is uh, now in northern Italy, at a very beautiful town at the foot of the Alps, and uh, had a very tiny Jewish community. It was a town that was sort of culturally divided between Germans and Italians. Uh, the Jewish community was mostly coming from the German, from German Germany German lands. Uh, from some from Nuremberg, some from uh, Regensburg, some from these uh, areas in, the, in German lands. And the bishop of Trent was also from Germany, from German lands. So. One of the scholars who have studied it, uh, Ronnie Shah, called it really a German affair. It was a German affair in that Northern town, uh, the foot of the Alps. So as I said, in March uh, 1475, when Easter and Passover uh, overlapped, uh, this, this boy disappeared uh, and probably drowned in many of the canals. And that was initially the, the fear, even the father feared that, that the boy just drowned in the canal. They searched the, the town, they searched even the houses of the Jews, they didn't find anything uh, on Friday, on the, what was Good Friday for Christians, what was obviously, it was, what, it was a, a Friday during, in the middle of Passover for Jews, they didn't find anything. And then on, uh, on Sunday, which for Christians was Easter Sunday, um, a Jewish a servant in the, in the home, a uh, Jewish servant went down to, this, to the cellar, to the canal to access water to get, get it to drink. Uh, and he finds this body and he says, I think I found the body of the of this child. So the J- Jews immediately run to report the find and the authorities came and the bishop immediately realized the potential power of it. He was a very well-read bishop. He read all these different like chronicles that mentioned other of those stories as one-liners uh, from the medieval period. And he... He said, we can make we can make a place for uh, for uh, here for pilgrims to come and we can make the boy saint. And they write this narrative that really pre- shows uh, the, the story that Jews are killing him in replacement of Christ. And again, to make him a saint, uh, the, the Christians wanted to make him a saint. This story is finished before the trial even fully begins, before any of the Jews are tortured and confess. So there are some Jews who confess to it, but they, in the proceedings, say, like, I don't know what you want to tell me. What do you want me to tell me? And the Christian authorities say, tell us the truth. I said, I, I'm telling you, Jews don't do it. What do you want us to t-? And then gradually the testimonies over time begin to align with that narrative that is written right at the beginning soon after the body is found. So you can see that process that is that is a thing. And I, what I did is scholars have mined the, these trial records for, for many, many decades. And they generally looked at it, for instance, for, um, Customs of Jews and, uh, and and there are some really interesting moments, like for instance, the canal under the house was used as a mikvah uh, as, as much as it was also used for drinking water. So there are some interesting snippets of life in it of a tiny Jewish community, three families in this town. And, uh, but would I but when you read it, the way the records are preserved, it seems like these testimonies are changing, that one Jew says that, another Jew says something else. And, 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 and if you are a Christian inclined to believe that stuff, you say, well, the Jews, you can't trust them what they say. They say different things. So what I did, when I was, uh, when I, was uh, I was very much aware of the, the fact that these trial records are not real trial records. That is, they are not stenographic records like we have now. They are written in Latin. They are pe- people Jews spoke German, the authorities spoke Italian. They needed a translator during the th- and then the records are in Latin. So you can see there is a total, you know, babel in the in the thing. There's there's just a uh, to- total confusion of languages. So that was something that I was aware of. But one thing that I did is I read the records as they were problematic, as they were chronologically. That is, I read them day by day. They are not organized chronologically, by design. Um, And it became very clear that at the beginning it was thought to have been accident. Then there are some rumors then uh, you know, for for a long time, the the testimonies of Jews are very similar. They say we did this, we did that. Uh, we don't do such things. You know, we did that on Passover, and that, and then only gradually, when torture is introduced, we begin to see the gradual sort of you know change of the testimonies and change of that. So what happens is. The Jewish males who are arrested right away after Simon's body is found eventually, by, by the uh, by June of the next year of fourteen seventy six, are executed. The reason why it lasted so long is that Jews interv- it sought intervention, and the uh, and the Duke of um, of uh, Tyrol, who under whose rule the uh, Trent was, prohibited the. Uh, the trial to proceed and the Pope also intervened prohibiting the trial to proceed. So, and then there was, um, there was a investigation uh, Investigators sent from Rome who wanted to check how the proceedings were going. So there were all these delays. The end of story is that the whole of Jewish community was destroyed. The men were all killed. Um, some converted, uh, and then were decapitated rather than burned at the stake. And the women eventually, after a long, after three years, also converted. With one exception, uh, Brunetta is the wife of the the most prominent Jew in, t- in, in town, Samuel, who seems to have withstood torture and not converted. And there is sort of a, an enigma about her. Um, so the Jewish community was destroyed and and in the Jewish memory, that trial completely disappears. It pops up a couple of times in Sephardic sources in the um, in the sixth, late sixteenth and in the seventeenth century. but it totally disappears from the Ashkenazi. And these were Ashkenazi Jews from the Ashkenazi memory. Um, in contrast to the Christians, that story is just
0: spreads like wildfire across Europe. Right. Even today, I don't know how many Jews are familiar with the story necessarily, at least the religious Jews of, of of Simon of Trent, they don't necessarily, they just know of the blood level. So I just want to ask one thing. I'm curious, you mentioned earlier that the, the Pope and the Church came out against it, the issue of bull even much earlier in the 13th century. Why is it that it just constantly persisted, and even over here in this case, where the where the church intervened, yeah. just simply persisted by the by the masses, so to speak, and even as bishop, when the the church clearly said it's not true.
1: Right, and this is a really excellent question, and this is this is one of the questions I wanted to answer, even in my my initial design of this book. It was it was very clear that everybody knew the argument that Jews do not need any blood, let alone human blood, right? That this is ridiculous, and and this was an argument that was known for many, many centuries. So why did this persist? And one of the reasons, I think, is exactly the story of Simon of Trent. The mass, I mean, look what happens today when people tweet things out where, you know, where uh, false information spreads, that is far more accepted than the truth, right? They, people read the wrong story first and they don't the, the, read the correction rate, right? So um, so what happened with that propaganda, and it really was multimedia propaganda of 1475 that the bishop engaged in and in, in his, his allies, spread the story so much that it entered what was deemed to be authoritative sources, like these very respectable scholarly chronicles. And and when I was researching it, one thing that I had this Eureka moment as I was sitting and reading, I, I went through hundreds of books from 14, uh, 1470s through 70 uh, through sixteen hundred edition by edition, and I flipped pages and I said, what did people know about Jews? What did these Christians know about Jews? And and all they knew, all they could read was that the Jews killed Christians, that they, you know, desecrated hosts, that they uh, desecrated crucifixes, that they did all kinds of nasty things. And I said to myself, wow, if this is what's popularly available, what people read, what people know, why do we expect them to then say, oh, but the Jews say that they don't do it, right? And this one Polish, the, the um, trials really, um, after the, in the second half of the uh, 16th century, really the 17th century, the majority of the trials and accusations are in Eastern Europe. And one of the Christian writers said, put it exactly in this way, like, who do you want to believe the... Um, The uh, fathers of the church, which is, you know, I'll I'll tell what what in a moment what happened, but the authoritative Christian sources are the rabbis. And if you are a Christian, you are going not to believe the rabbis, right? So what happened was Simon of Trent entered these massive histories. Uh, The bishop invested a lot of money in art, in churches in the region, and then after the Reformation, I, I I don't know whether you know, but there was this very important Council of Trent, which was the gathering of all the bishops and archbishops and cardinals of the Church to deal with the Reformation, with Luther and what was happening to the to to, to Western Christianity. And they gathered in Trent. Well, guess what? They walked around the city, and there were murals of Simon. There were relics of Simon. There was a chapel of Simon. There was this of Simon. So even though Simon was not recognized by the church in 1475, in fact, the Pope explicitly prohibited the worship of Simon. By 1560s, all that, those, those facts on the ground stayed there. The bishops come and look and then Eventually this is accepted. So the so Rome in 1580 accepts the cult of Simon. And it it is included in a liturgical church calendar. So once you have that in the calendar, in the liturgical church calendar where all the saints are, well, what do you say to a priest who says, But look, there is a thing. And this is the moment where the popes no longer issue a defense of Jews. So even though we, and I've seen it in the archives, there are church officials who are engaging in behind the scenes sort of diplomatic intervention on behalf of Jews. What Jews want, when a public condemnation, want a public statement, they understand that such public statement is important, may not always be effective, but it's very important. And they are not getting it. So that's the, uh, that's the, that's why. And then only in, in 1965, when the Nostra Aetate was issued by the Vatican Council reconciling, in reconciliation between Jews and, and the Catholic church, the cult of Simon was abolished in Trento. Gotcha.
0: Uh, so what are a few other uh, perhaps famous blood level cases?
1: Uh, famous blood level, uh, the The most famous in modern times, probably the Baylis affair in Kiev in 1911, 1913. Um, but there were others too. There is a recent book by Ed, Be- uh, Ed Be- Ber- Berenson uh, in, on the Messina, Messina uh, upstate New York uh, uh, accusation. Um, there was the pogrom in the Kielce in 1946, was a result of a rumor that a child was uh, killed by Jews. So there were other, you know, cases that became quite famous in the and Damascus Affair, obviously in 1840 as well.
0: And how you you hear a lot of, at least in Jewish stories now, at least now that you always told the stories, you know, there's, there's all these cases, the town was how prevalent was it really in in, in in you know, just small towns in Poland and in Russia and Ukraine? How was it was it really every every Pesach, every Passover was it happening? Or this is just that's just like popular memory today, at least in the Jewish angle, that they were always scared of this.
1: So I, I think there is and again at some level, um uh they, they, it didn't happen every year, but these accusations did happen, and certainly by the in the there was a wave in the eighteenth century that it seemed that every few years there was an accusation in in Ukraine in particular, and and that really felt like 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 something horrific was 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 uh, was happening, and especially because Jews were very cruelly executed. So in the past in other places Jews may have succeeded in being saved and I mapped it on my website of the outcomes of the trials. And it was actually quite surprising that of the you know 100 something stories over over or or actual cases or stories from 1144 until the end of the 18th century uh, the majority of the stories or cases end up with Jews not being uh, actually executed; that they are freed in one way or the other. the The memory is much more of that memory of the martyrs, and that is something that um, that comes through liturgical, uh, you know, slichot and kinot from the uh, Jews that were set in synagogues that were uh, that were included. In local liturgies, uh, in that kind of public memory, and then it comes back in the nineteenth century because there is a wave of accusations at the end of the nineteenth century, from as as anti-Semitism, modern anti-Semitism emerges in in eighteen eighties and on. That also is accompanied by Jewish scholars digging in the archives and publishing other older stories and older cases so it sort of feels like this was a relentless thing and again it was when you know this and when you know a child disappears you when you know that these stories did happen there is no no doubt that the Jews could have been very fearful Uh, and one of the things that I do want to say is in the Before the 18th century, the majority of the accusations were not concocted by the uh, illiterate uh, peasants. They were concocted by the intellectuals who read the books because it was in these books that they read about these stories. Whereas the peasants had direct, contact with jews they lived next to them they were neighbors with them they bought stuff from them they sold stuff to them they served them they lived in their homes so there was a much more of a of a sense like Jews don't do that this changes in the 19th and 20th century because these stories spread much more widely through popular press and then anti-semitic press and then you have much more of a shift into the the uneducated riffraff uh, from the intellectuals who, who may be you know some may be uh, coming in defense of jews.
0: Right. So what were what were what were some what were some Jewish responses to the blood level that you came across?
1: So there were uh, there were first of all if some if an accusation happens, the first thing to do is to intervene, right? So they would use diplomacy and connections to intervene with the authorities, the highest authorities they could get to. And that is something that is definitely uh, a signature of the communities that were directly affected by the accusations, predominantly the Ashkenazi Jewish communities. It is interesting because the Christian, Christians produce a lot of anti-Jewish literature that spread these stories. Jews produced much less, and we see much more explicit literature from the Sephardic Jews about it, and much more polemical, uh, and trying to prove how irrational, how ridiculous this accusation is. The Jewish, the the Ashkenazi Jews mostly produced, as I said, slichot, Kinot, and also Yiddish songs and tales that were sung. And they were sometimes sung in Yiddish to El Malera Hamim, for instance, to the tune of, of the prayers. Uh, and they focus on the martyrdom. They focus on how these Jews were accused and how they withstood the torture, how they never converted and how they died uh, truth, truthful Jews. And, and, and that is, I think, was a, a tool to give Jews who may face the real accusations tools of survival how can you survive this horrific torment? Uh, and, and it is to give them faith that, yes, God is with you. This is part of you know, the whole story of martyrdom, like, like the Akedat you know, Yitzchak in that way, that you are chosen to do something good. You are, you, they were called kapoires for the Jewish community. Uh, for the Jew, for the sins of the community so so it was it was a tool to give to Jews who might face it uh, to 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 withstand the torture, not to confess, not to blame anybody
0: Do you have any particular examples of hand of any Jewish responses or defenses in a particular case or no
1: we have some i discuss in one of the chapters the yiddish literature that uh, that is uh, that is published in uh, and, and was published of these little pamphlets that were presumably distributed and sung and bought in ashkenazi synagogues in eastern europe and in central europe yeah mm.
0: interesting gotcha so obviously there's a lot more in the book i want to get to something though I want to bring up with you that is not in the book is that uh, recently, I don't know, it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there was a, a big controversy surrounding uh, Professor Ariel To'af from Israel about something he said about the blood level. Can you talk about what he said, his hypothesis was, and, and what your response is?
1: So it was in 2007, so not that long ago, oh. but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but close. So uh, Professor Ariel To'af was a, a, a son of a chief rabbi of Italy, And a professor of Jewish history, medieval Jewish history, uh, in particular at Bar-Ilan University. So very good yiches, very good, uh, you know, standing and and authority. And he um, decided to write a book about Simon of Trent, about this trial in Trent and trying to explain that. And the way he, he, he wrote it in Italian... He didn't present any of the, his research before to any other scholars, and the way he phrased some of his claims implied that there were some Jews who desired blood, that some sect of Jews and who used blood and and who did it. So it the book was pulped right, right away. In fact, when I Learned that the book came out the day of its publication. Ordered it online. My order was cancelled. Uh, the, the the book was published, which obviously excited anti semites. Said, "Oh, Jews control the print and and this thing." And those who the book did get into somebody's hands, and there was like within a week, I w- believe, an English translation published somewhere by anti semitic. Uh, 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 so uh, play uh, you know websites and stuff like that. So for the anti semites, it was was ha. Here is the rabbi's son. Here is the professor from Bar Ilan University who says that Jews may have done it or that some Jews did it. And this book, he later on revised it, and a year later, uh, a revised edition came. You can probably buy it now, uh, but. Uh, the harm was done the harm was done by anti-semite uh, for anti-semites immediately embraced and the, also the harm was done because so many Jewish community leaders worked so hard with the Catholic authorities Catholic Church to abolish the cult to deny you know to refute this accusation to and here we have this prominent scholar whose Jewishness you cannot doubt, who is claim, making these claims. And uh, this resulted actually in a kind of an, a revival of, of the cult of Simon in Trento. There's a group of that is trying to revive and say, well, his cult was now wrongly abolished, because as Professor Toav says, Jews did, in fact, kill it. And his his reading is absolutely mis- misreading of the, of the uh, trial records. Uh, he takes some of the senten- sentences at face value. He doesn't seem to understand the way the trial records were prepared. For a very specific reason that the that the bishop had of making Simon a saint, so uh, but the damage is really a serious damage.
0: Right, it, it is. It's, uh, it, well, why can I ask you why why is something that you didn't bring up in the book?
1: Um, it is such a complex uh, story, and the book is already, as you said, over five hundred pages long, that I didn't feel it had. I would do justice to it. And it's such a sensitive story, given the the efforts to revive the Simon of Trent, the cult. And you can, you probably have heard about this Italian painter recently, uh, a, painting, a, a painting of Simon of Trent being killed by Jews, uh, exactly to refute an exhibition that is at, at the Diocesan Museum of Trent. So a church museum of Trent showing how How the Jewish community was framed and how it was this whole affair was invented, and that painting was apparently commissioned to prove that Jews did that. So it's a very powerful, uh, unfortunate uh, story.
0: Right. Um, Yeah. Okay. Uh, Now, uh, just to, to wrap up over here, obviously you you mentioned a bunch of times. Why don't you talk about you actually created a website to go along with the book? Why did you decide to do that, and what exactly? Where can people find it, and what exactly is on the website?
1: So the uh, the the website was created because I needed a map, and I prepared a map that was for the for the book that was not quite quite satisfying because there are so many ways you can play with the information, with the data, and so on and so forth. So my husband is actually a digital humanities specialist. So he said, Hey, why don't we create a bunch of maps? So I uh, I collected the information, I created a, a flawed spreadsheet that then he cleaned up. And we created several maps that are dynamic maps that you can actually play with in, in chronology and the type. So the maps show uh, what what kind of sources tell us about these stories about Jews, whether they're legal sources or just legends, what were the outcomes of trials and so on and so forth. And the other thing that it allowed me to do is to add some images. And I mean, the book has a lot of images, but uh, add images that I wasn't allowed to, or I couldn't uh, include because again, the publisher said, oh, you already have 30 images, you can't add any more. So I... I, I was able to add that. It also allows me to add some multimedia things, uh, you know update reviews and things like that so so that's uh, that's how the the website started.
0: right well, what's the website name for anybody that's looking? For?
1: the bloodlibeltrail. org
0: right When it's on a podcast, I'll try to include it in the notes. So to end off what are you what are you working? What is your plan to work on next? Is it going to be something else with with the church or something different? Mm-hmm.
1: No, something different finally, <laughs> although there is some assignment I have to to do a little bit more on this but uh, now one of the things that I, I was I discovered as I was writing on the book is that many of the primary sources that the sources from the period that we now use as scholars were published in the in, uh, Jewish uh, academic journals in nineteenth and 20 and early 20th century and they were published the the sources relevant to my book during the years where these 19th and 20th century accusations took place and it made me think about the impact of current events not just sort of broad developments like modernity like women's rights like whatever you know zionism but uh, of specific events on the way we study history. And I think we can understand it even better now because we live through a pandemic and all scholars are now studying and trying to write or, uh, or teach about the plague, right, and, and disease. So we can see, and I think in a few years, there will be a whole sort of crop up of, of, uh, of, of books about disease and about plagues. So it made me think about how much Jewish historiography and what we know about Jewish history is inf- influenced by very specific, specific events in history. So that's my next project to investigate that and to see how much, uh, how much very precise events have had influence on our understanding of Jewish history.
0: Well, fascinating. So uh, I'll include the, uh, I said the link to the to website, to the book where people can purchase it. And thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Take care.
0: Bye.